<laughs> oh, man. Lego 500 right here this Saturday. I can't wait. I'm so excited about this. I've been practicing Legos with my grandkids for years now, and I'm ready to build. I will be here. I will have kids. You should come here. You should bring kids. This is going to be an awesome, awesome event. Good morning. My name is Rich Joy. I'm Calvary's interim pastor. Welcome to those of you who are in the room and those of you joining us from home, uh, as Russ said earlier and Luke led us through. It's good to be together and worshiping the Lord in the house of the Lord today. Um, about maybe about a year ago, I had a guy that I was just starting to get to know a little bit say to me, hey, Rich, sometime I'd like to you know, get together and break bread with you. He said he wanted to break bread with me. And my mind went through a short list of what that could possibly mean, because that's not a phrase I use every day. And my quirky brain presented a picture of the two of us sitting at a table with torn pieces of all kinds of loaves in piles all around us. But I, I figured out what he meant. He meant he wanted to share a meal with me across the table sometime so that we could talk and share and get to know each other a little bit better. The breaking of bread. That's actually what we're looking at today. We've been looking at Acts chapter 2, a passage there that describes that early church, to try to answer the question, what is church and what are the non-negotiable essential elements that make us a church? Despite how we structure and how we present and the type of songs we sing or programs we put out, every church that calls itself Christian should have a core list of actions and attitudes and behaviors and practices that define us as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ. And we're finding those in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. I'm going to read the passage again, put it up here. This will be the third week or fourth week, I'm not sure where we are, that we'll be reading this. I hope this passage is starting to become familiar, that you're remembering parts of it as we read it every week. Here it goes, Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says they, that was the first group of people that gathered together after Jesus rose from the dead, thousands of them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we've already said this group of people was devoted to, committed to, all in with the idea of learning from the apostles' teaching. What we said is, we take this Bible today, we teach it, we come to it, we learn from it. This is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, the Bible. That was week, the first one. And then uh, last week, looked at that uh, the people were devoted to fellowship and talked about fellowship being the sharing and partnering and the coming together, carrying each other's burdens, getting to know each other, being unified and together. And after last Sunday's uh, morning service in the hallways and out in the foyer, I heard great stories from, from several of you of ways that this fellowship, this community, came around you in your time of need. It was so moving. It actually gave me a quiet sense of awe to just think, God, how you work in people's lives. 
And then I heard from some of you who said, here's what I'm going to do. And you shared with me a very specific plan about what you're going to do to connect with people, to promote fellowship here. I went home so encouraged last week after hearing those stories from you. And then Friday, I heard one directly to me from a family member. I had a phone call this past week with my sister, Jean. She's my older sister. She's four years older. She lives in Tennessee. Jean has had a very hard life. Struggles, pain, disappointments, health issues. It's just been a, a long, hard run for her. Uh, she, uh, um, not too long ago, I don't remember the exact time frame, she decided to visit a local church in her area, 30 to 50 people. She went in one Sunday. These folks, she told me, just embraced her. They made her feel welcome. They invited her in. They invited her to come back earlier the next week to come to a Sunday school class. She came back. She met the woman who invited her. She went to the Sunday school class. She has not left that church. They have cared for her heart. They, they took her in. They, they let her know she was loved. They pray for her. She, along the course of this, um, said to me on the phone, um, I've just recommitted myself to, to having Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And um, she made this craft. It was a pillow that she glued chains to, and she wrote, break every chain on it. And she said, someone I know saw that pillow, and they asked me, what does that mean? And I said to them, this is my sister. I, I, I was in awe that we were having this conversation. She said, I told them that when you follow the Lord Jesus, he breaks chains in your life. And he's broken chains in mine. So many chains, she said. Um, and then she said that uh, while she was there at church, there was a woman who had at least an equally hard life, probably harder than my sister Jean had. And uh, Jean said the woman opened up to me and shared her life. And the people in church were amazed because she'd never opened up to anyone before. And uh, my sister came alongside her. She picks her up for church every Sunday. She takes her out grocery shopping on the way home. She cares for this woman. Where did she learn that? The church cared for her, and she cares for this woman. That's fellowship. That's fellowship. I was so humbled. I was so touched. I was so moved. And here's the thing, one thing that really struck me, too. This is a church of 30 to 50 people. With, they sing from hymnals with an organ. They have potluck dinners. They didn't win her over with slick programs and the latest technology. They won my sister Jean over with love and care and fellowship. That's what I was talking about last week. That's the power of fellowship. Why am I bringing it up again today? Because breaking a bread is fellowship. We're actually going to look at it again a little bit more. You might hear the phrase in this passage that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and ask yourself, is that fellowship? Were they eating dinners together? Or is that communion? Were they taking the elements and remembering Jesus' death? Was it fellowship or was it communion? Yes, it was. Both. What we're going to see today is they did both when they met together in each other's homes. The breaking of bread means fellowship and it means communion. So I want to talk to you for a moment before we go any further about your dining room table. Your dining room table. Can you picture it? In your home, the place you go to where you eat your meals. Um, your regular meals by yourself or, or with whoever else is in your household, your family. You go there and you eat. Your dining room table has the potential to be a place of awe 
It has the potential to be a place where you see God's hand at work, where you connect with people, where you hear their stories, where you have fellowship, where there's relational connection, where there's sharing, where you're getting to know each other better, not just eating, but going deeper. Your dining room table has the potential to be a place where God is glorified and koinonia, fellowship, happens and grows. The dining room table in our house has been, it's been a central meeting place in our house for years. Yeah, we eat our meals there. But around our dining room table, as I've thought back over the years, we've had family, we've had friends, we've had strangers, we've had people who needed care, we have people who have cared for us, we have prayed at that table, we have laughed, we have cried, we have connected with people, we've encouraged people, we've been encouraged. There has been such deep bonding around our dining room table while we ate some great meals and some ordinary meals. We had koinonia there in the breaking of bread. You have that same potential. All you have to do is invite someone to join you at your dining room table. Serve a little bit of food. Fellowship will happen. Conversations will happen. Maybe you're going to hear someone's story about our amazing God, and it's going to produce a sense of awe in you as you sit there and go, God, you work in their life too, like you work in mine. And I see it. Glory to God. Your dining room table is a place for the breaking of bread that we're going to be talking about. And I want us to take a look at a couple of different places in the New Testament where bread was broken to help us understand what this group was doing. It said they broke bread in each other's homes, not just here in the church with communion elements, which we're going to do today. They broke bread in each other's homes, and they shared across the table. The same wording is used in Luke chapter 24. I'm going to give you a little context, and then I'm going to read the wording. Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to Mary, and later that same day, the first day he was risen, he comes across, Jesus appears. He comes across, he encounters two disciples walking along the road on their way to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. They're talking. Jesus comes alongside them, and he says, what are you talking about? And they start sharing with him what happened in Jerusalem about this man, Jesus, who was a great prophet of God, who uh, the, the leaders turned over and had crucified. And they said to him, don't you know? Where have you been? Everybody's talking about this. And they're having conversation along the road. As they're walking, the day is, is getting, um, getting on. It's getting toward evening, toward the dinner hour. And they're also at a place in the path where they might part ways. And the two men, they still don't know it's Jesus. And they said, would you join us? Would you come to our table? Instead of going your way, come with us. Come sit with us. We want to talk more. We want to hear more from you. We want to break bread together around our table. And that's where we pick this up. Luke chapter 24, verse 30. They sit down for a meal, and Jesus breaks bread. Up to this point, they still didn't know it was Jesus. And here's what happens. When he was at the table with them, Jesus, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. At that moment, if we keep reading, at that moment, they say, aha, it's Jesus. Now, maybe the Spirit of God opened their eyes. Maybe the Spirit of God blinded them up to that point, but something about the breaking of bread looked very familiar. Jesus broke bread. He gave it to them. I'm sharing this with you because it's the same wording that we find. The same Greek words are used here as they are in Acts chapter 2, where I just read, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. 
Same Greek words used here in Luke 24.30, that Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them. I want us to recognize a couple of things, and then we're going to move on to another example. This breaking of bread was in the context of a meal. It was in the context of conversation. They were sharing. They were going deep. Jesus was explaining things to them about who the Messiah was. He was opening their minds. That was part of the reason they said, don't go. Come have dinner with us. We want to hear more. He was also moving in their hearts because if we keep reading this passage, once Jesus breaks the bread and disappears from them, they're sitting with the bread and they're saying, that was Jesus. And they look at each other and say, weren't our hearts burning within us when we talked to him? Jesus was filling their mind and touching their hearts. There was a deep, deep connection there as they broke the bread. Let's back up to one that happened before Jesus rose from the dead. Both of these scenes, they end up at a dining room table. The two um, disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus end up at a dining room table together. This is Jesus with his disciples. This is before he's arrested. This is on the night he was betrayed. He's having what we've come to call the Last Supper. He's sitting with his disciples at a Passover meal. And in that Passover meal, we know it, we, we practice it all the time with our communion elements, which we're going to do a little bit later today, a little bit later this morning. Um, Jesus broke the bread, and he poured the cup, and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood poured out for you. He did that in the context of a meal. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to talk a little bit about that meal and what's happening there. In, um, in Luke 22, verses 17 through 19, these are very familiar words to most of us. After taking the cup, he, Jesus, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same Greek words are used here to describe the breaking of bread that were used in Luke 24 with the two disciples of the breaking of bread that are the same words that are used in Acts chapter 2, the breaking of bread. So what is this referring to? Is it the meal or is it communion? Is it the breaking of an actual loaf of bread as part of the meal or is it the taking of a piece of bread to remember that Jesus died on the cross? Yes, both. Both. And it's so important for us to realize and remember and to dive into this today that the breaking of bread is a meal. It's sharing a meal across the table and it's remembering Jesus. It's both things. I want to give the context of a meal here. Jesus broke this bread and he poured this cup in the context of a meal. It wasn't a regular meal. It wasn't an everyday meal. It was a Passover meal. It was a special meal, but it was still a meal. They were sitting at a table eating, talking, conversing, sharing, relating, having fellowship, what we call koinonia, around this table. It's that context that Jesus said, see this bread? When you eat it, I want you to remember what's about to happen to me. See this cup? When you drink it, I want you to remember what's about to happen to me. So that after I'm gone, when you sit down for a meal again, and you break bread, you might think of me. And you pour a cup, you might think of me. Jesus is explaining this in the context of a meal. And there's so much that happens here. 
that we can learn from. And the first one is where they're sitting. If you read that passage in Luke 22, it says they were reclining at table. That means they were half laying, legs out away from the table, head and shoulders near the table. I don't know how they ate like that. I need a, I need a chair and a table so I can eat without spilling. Somehow they reclined at table, and we typically picture it like this. I brought a picture of Da Vinci's The Lord's Supper. I'm sure you have seen it before, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn and, and uh, point out. In Da Vinci's Last Supper, they're all sitting in a straight line along the table. It looks like they're all sitting in chairs. I think I actually see the legs of a stool down here. And Jesus is in the center, as he should be, with disciples on both sides. How many of you, when you think of communion, when you picture the upper room, when you think about the Lord's Supper, you picture this? It's kind of ingrained into our minds. It didn't look like that. If this was a typical table in a typical room in Jesus' day, it was called the triclinium, and it looked more like this. I'll show you a picture of it. Have that one? I'm going to turn around again. The triclinium was U-shaped. It actually had three sides, and they reclined around it. Now, this one still shows Jesus like he's sitting up. But more likely than these folks sitting, they were reclining like these folks here in this part of the picture. And they were around this table. The center was left open so that people who were serving, who brought food and drink, could go down the center of the table and distribute it all the way around, not have to reach over um, a table. Now, this is important. I want to keep this picture up while I talk about this. This teaches us something. We can learn something from this. Here was how seating typically happened around a triclinium in this meal. The host would sit on the side of the table near the wall. This was the most important seat in the room. Jesus would sit there as the host, not because he thought he was the most important, which we'll see in a minute, but this is where the host sat. And then to either side of the host would sit the most important people in the room. So that's why the disciples would come to Jesus and say, can I sit at your right and at your left? They're picturing this. And at a typical triclinium, at a typical dinner, the host would sit in the main seat and the two most important people would be sitting next to him. Now you work your way around, you go down the social ladder. This, this long side was where all the most important people would sit. The next most important people, the ones with the highest status, would sit at this short side over here. And then the least most important, the least most important? The least important people, the lowest in the social ladder, would sit along this side of the table where the open side of the room was. And the reason they sat there was because they were expected to help serve. The people who are, are back here, they're against the wall. They're not getting up. They're being served. That's why they're sitting there. These people on the front side of this U, on the front side of this triclinium, the room is open to them. They can get up. They can move. They can go back and forth. This was a strategic seating plan, and those people were expected to serve. You remember what happened in this scene? This meal starts with the washing of hands. A servant brings out a jug and a basin of water, and they pour the water into the basin while you rub your hands and wash them. There's a, there's a hand washing before the meal. At this point in the Lord's Supper, you know what happened, right? Jesus, who's not supposed to move, Jesus, who's the host, Jesus, who is supposed to be served in this setting, gets up from the table. 
He takes off his outer robe. He gets the basin. He gets the pitcher. And rather than go around and wash everyone's hands, he gets down on the floor and he washes everyone's feet. That should have been the job of a household servant or one of these guys. They should have gotten up and gotten the basin. But it was below them. They didn't do it. And Jesus got up and washed their feet, and he said, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. The Bible says, in order to show them the full extent of his love, he washed their feet. There was also an argument that broke out. Do you remember this argument? The disciples started arguing about who was greater. I'm greater. You're greater. Jesus loves me more. I'm higher on the social status. There are 12 of us. I'm probably number three in the list. You're probably number eight. They had this argument about who was better. They may have very well had that argument right in front of this table when they were trying to decide where they were going to sit. They were jockeying for positions here. They were saying, I'm the greatest. I should sit next to Jesus. I've known him longer. I've done more things. I'm more capable. I'm smarter. I'm the leader. You sit on that side of the table. You should be down there somewhere. I'm sitting over here. They had this fight about where they were going to sit around that table. And Jesus said, you know what? Don't do that like the world does. Don't argue about who's the greatest. In another place, he said, if you come into a a dining hall, a dining room, a place like this, he said, take the lowest seat. Take this one. And then maybe someone will come over to you and say, hey, why are you sitting here? Why don't you move up? That would be much better than if you came into the scene and you sat right here and someone came over to you and said, why are you sitting there? Get out of that seat. That would be embarrassing. In Jesus' day, they understood this because this was always the seating arrangement. Jesus taught a powerful lesson in there about loving and serving. He said, the greatest among you is the servant. When you get together around a table, when you get together in church, when you're in your dining room, when you're out in the hallways, when you're at home, wherever you are, serve one another. And I might suggest this, that serving is one of the greatest ways to promote fellowship. Serving is one of the most powerful ways to make connection. If I come to you and try to lord it over you, try to direct you, tell you what to do, make you meet my needs, we're not going to connect very well. But if I come to you and humble myself and say, what do you need? How can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I lift you up? How can I serve you? There's a much better chance that we're going to connect in real point in the year, real fellowship. So that's some interesting lesson around that table from the Lord's Supper. But I'm telling you all this so that we really understand that when the Lord gave us the bread and the cup, it was in the context of a dining room table. It was in the context of a real meal. Here's a little bit more. This is a Passover meal. It's not just an everyday meal. It's a Passover meal. Um, I'm done with this picture, by the way. I asked you to keep it up, but we can take it down now. Thanks. In the Passover meal, uh, if you ever get a chance to go through an entire Passover, if you haven't, I'll just tell you, there is so much symbolism in that meal that points to Jesus. I have led... Christian seders, where you go through the Passover seder and point out all the places in that Passover that point to Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple this morning, um, just as bonus pieces for being here and for tuning in from home. There were four cups in the Passover meal. 
They were taken systematically, always in the same place, and they each represented uh, something very symbolic in this Passover meal. The first cup they, they would pour, every cup, by the way, came from a single pitcher. Everybody had their cups. The wine was in a single pitcher. And the host, or a designated servant, usually in a Passover, it was the father or the host, would pour that out into everyone's cup. It was very symbolic that that all came from one pitcher, and it was poured out into all the cups. Jesus took that pitcher in this Passover, in this setting, and he poured it into all of the disciples' cups, and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I will not drink it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. That wine we know represents his blood. It's very symbolic that it was one vessel for all of them. And he said, all of you take it. And he was the one pouring it out. That was the first cup. The second cup uh, was a cup of um, remembering the plagues and the Passover. The third cup, after dinner. Once the meal was eaten, once they had had their full, and the Passover is eaten, and the plates are cleared, the host takes the pitcher for a third time and pours out more for all of the participants to have in their hand. This third cup is called the cup of redemption. In the Seder, for hundreds and thousands of years, the Passover Seder called that third cup the cup of redemption. That was the one where they remembered the sacrificed lamb, where they said the blood of a lamb takes away our sin, what they had practiced for years and years in the temple. That cup represented. Jesus took that cup, the Bible, that, the scripture that we read says, and after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. What? We've had this cup every year at Passover, remembering the old covenant. Jesus said, no more. When you drink this cup now, it's a new covenant. And this is my blood, not the blood of a lamb. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink it and remember me. Those disciples still didn't understand what was coming, but they had a very concrete anchor point to look back on and say, Jesus' blood was the cup of redemption. Fourth cup um, was just the, uh, the um, conclusion of the Seder. Now the bread, the bread speaks to us too. It's called the afikomen. And in a Passover Seder, there are three pieces of it. It looks like matzah. If you go to the store today and you buy a matzah cracker, that's what it looks like. Um, And very interesting symbolism on the matzah. If you take a matzah cracker out of the box and you look at it, it's pierced with holes and it's striped with brown burn marks. And the Bible says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. It's unleavened bread. hasn't risen yet. They take the three pieces and they fold it in a linen napkin. One, two, three. Like layers, one, two, three. Nobody really knows or explains why there are three. I like to think of it as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because the middle piece, the afikoman, the one that goes in the center, during the Seder, the Father takes it out. He breaks it in half. He puts half the afikoman back in, and he takes the other one, wraps it in a napkin, and he hides it somewhere in the house. At the end of the Seder, as a fun game, the children are supposed to go find it. They go find the other half of the afikoman. They bring it back to the Father. Whoever found it gets a prize for it. They get a cash prize, a reward, and they call it redeemed. That piece of matzah that was in hiding, that has come out, that was 
dead and now is alive, that was in a tomb and is now out where it can be seen, is a piece of bread of redemption. There's so much amazing symbolism in this thing. The other piece, the one that's left in the middle, the one that I call Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the half piece of afikoman that's still in the center, the Father, at this point in the Seder, he takes it out, and he breaks it, and he passes it around. And they take that piece of bread together. Jesus took that afikoman, and he broke it, and he passes it around. But this time, something is said that's never been said in a Passover Seder before. He passes it around, and he said, This bread is my body, broken for you. Eat this and remember me. He's brought all new meaning and all new purpose to this Passover meal. Jesus grounded these really timeless, important truths in the elements of a meal as they broke bread together. Isn't there something about sharing a meal that just goes beyond eating? I mean, I love eating. I'll come to your house just to eat. But there's something that happens at a dining room table, across a table. There's something that happens when you share food and you start talking. I think it's how we were created. I think God put it in us, is that we connect on a deeper level than just the food. That's what was happening here. It wasn't until um, years later that the church turned that process into a ceremony that we remember together, that we turned it into this, so that we would remember Jesus. And this is not a bad thing. Regularly, Christian churches pop this open, and they eat the bread, and they remember Jesus died on the cross like we're going to do. They drink the cup, and they remember his blood like we're going to do. But when Jesus first introduced this, it was a meal. So when that chapter of Acts that we read describes those people, it says they were breaking bread together in each other's homes. Here's what I think it's saying. I think they came together regularly. They shared meals. And when they got to the point where they had bread, they said, oh, remember? Remember Jesus? Didn't the disciples say at the Passover before he died, when they broke that bread to remember his body on the cross, let's remember him. And they talked about him while they ate. This is how I see it. And then when they drank a cup at the meal, as they were breaking bread in each other's homes, they were singing hymns or encouraging each other or talking about life. And they were going deeper together. And they they would start to drink the cup and they'd say, oh, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, this cup represents his blood when he, he talked about that in Passover. And I wonder sometimes, this is just me, this is just me. I wonder sometimes, If when Jesus broke that bread and poured that cup the night before he died, if he was picturing us doing this regularly at meals, or if he was picturing us sitting around with little cups, (laughs) and I am not trying to be disrespectful of this, this represents the greatest gift of love and sacrifice this world has ever seen. Just trying to build a little bit new meaning into it and say, this is communion, but it's community. This is breaking of bread, but we break bread together. And we're actually going to. Now I'm going to call our worship team back up, and I'm going to call our servers forward. I asked today if we could do communion the way we haven't done it here. Um, I understand it was pre-COVID the last time we passed plates. Um, We're going to pass these around. And in case... Uh, you weren't here, or it's been so long you can't remember. 
Um, I'm hoping that our, our elders remember how to pass the plate. Um, they're going to hand a plate to you if you're on the end of the aisle. You take out one cup, pass it to the person next to you all the way down the aisle, and the elder on the other end will uh, take it and continue passing it. Go ahead, guys. You, uh, take the trays and start passing them. And the reason I asked if we could do it this way, I know it's going to take a little longer. The band's going to play a little bit in the background, and I'm going to talk a little bit. But the reason I asked if we could do it this way today is because I wanted us to really think about the community aspect of communion. And I thought maybe simply passing the tray to the person next to you, you can start. Don't wait for me. Don't wait for instructions. Just start. Uh, maybe um, just passing the tray to the person next to you would be a simple reminder that we do this together, that we do this in community. In fact, what I really want to do is I want you to I want you to engage your imagination, and I want you to think we're all sitting in a big living room. We've just broken bread together. We've just feasted on the Word of God, if that's better for you. But we're just all sitting together in a big room, like a big family, a big group of friends, and we are sharing a meal together, and we are going to, in the context of this, we're going to take the bread in the cup, and we're going to remember Jesus. If it helps you, do this. Look around the room. Usually... This is what happens when I get my communion cup. If I'm sitting down there, I take the cup and I, I meditate on it. And I think about the cup and I pray on it and I try to remember what it, and I'm focused in on me and Jesus in the cup. I want you to do something a little bit differently now. I want you to look around the room. I want you to actually turn around. I want you to look at someone. I want you to make eye contact with someone. Yeah, you can wait. That's a great idea. Give a little wave. I've always kind of pictured Jesus at that moment in Passover with the cup where he's, he's lifted the cup. He's, he's actually held it up for everyone to see and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. So maybe as you're looking around, you're not done looking around yet. And at home, um, join us in the living room here. Maybe you look at someone and hold your cup up. Hey, we're taking this together. This is, this is the cup of redemption. This is the blood of the lamb. This bread is his body that he'd, he'd broken for, for you. For you. Can you look around at someone and say, hey, we're doing this together. Because we belong together. Jesus brought us together. If there's one essential non-negotiable element of what a church is, it's Jesus. Without Jesus, a Christian church is just a social club. This that we remember in this cup has got to be the one most non-negotiable element there is in calling ourselves a church. Remembering that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he shed his blood, that he's let his, he let his body be pinned there, that by his grace we're forgiven. By his wounds we are healed. He's pierced for our transgressions. He took our punishment. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, our behalf, yours and mine, yours and mine. We do this together. I wish we could sit in a big living room, I do, and pass around a loaf and a cup. And I, and I would go around with the pitcher and fill the cups if we could do that together so that we would remember that this is what breaking of bread is. Breaking of bread is coming together, but it's also remembering Jesus at the cross. So I'm going to ask you to um, open up the top of your cup. 
peel away the part that has the bread and hold it in your hand while I open the scriptures that we often read. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. And as you're holding that, that bread in your hand, and you're remembering Jesus' body, remember it for everybody because he calls us his body now. We're his body. When he broke it and he divided it around, everybody got a piece. Everybody have a piece? Jesus said this. Oh, this is Paul writing. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, you decided we were worth going to the cross for to redeem us. That you let your body, your perfectly innocent body, be nailed to a cross and die there. And you died there, Jesus, for us. We, we should have been punished, right? We should have been. But we weren't because he was. So when we take this bread, what, can, what else could we say? But thank you. It says after he had given thanks, he passed the bread around. So Luke had us be grateful out loud a little while ago. It gives me an idea. Say thank you out loud and then take the bread. Thank you, Lord. And if you would now, please open the juice portion of your cup. And I'm going to ask you to do this a little differently too. Since we're all in the living room together and we've just shared a meal and we've broken bread. And the cup has come around, the cup of redemption, the one that represents our forgiveness. And it's for all of us. I'm going to ask you to stand up with your cup. Just stand up. And look around the room. Around the room. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus died for you. Jesus shed this blood for you. If he were in the room and it was the Last Supper and he was serving, he'd pour this into your cup. And he'd say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. No longer have to bring lambs into the temple year after year because it's finished. It's finished by my blood. This is what it said. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We do remember you, Lord, and we drink this cup. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look forward to your coming, Lord. But thank you that you've given us each other, that we can be together here while we learn to love you and serve you and serve each other better.